what are you trying to play? I'm just trying to figure out the bass line to that Paula Abdul song, Forever Your Girl. Oh, yeah, I love that song. I wish I could hear more Paula Abdul on the radio. You can. On WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Really? 88.3. It's all Paula all the time. Awesome. Good afternoon. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got Living Writers here on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Um, Brian Delaney is here engineering, and I'm so pleased to have on the line R.A. Reiki uh, joining us via telephone um, from L.A. Um, R.A., are you are you here with us? Yes. <laughs> um, and and I'll just say uh, a. a uh, a real quick word before launching into R.A. Reiki's um, a short bio on the back of his novel out with Ghost Road Press, UP, um, that R.A. is uh, joining us, but he's got a bit of asthma. So it's, it's, it's nice of you to still be up for doing this, R.A. I, I appreciate it. It's not. It's just, it's just asthma. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, o- it's only the breath of life, right? Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, without further ado, um, born in Marquette, R.A. Reiki has studied writing at Central Michigan, Br- Brandeis, Virginia, and Western Michigan. UP was nominated by John Casey for the Sewanee Writers Series. Reiki's novella, Portrait of the Artist, as a boogeyman, will be published by Ghost Road Press in 2010. All right, and so so you find yourself out in LA, um, and and the the novel that we're talking about today is set in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. Um, are you feeling a bit homesick, RA? Or no, no. As a matter of fact, I just I wrote uh, I'm writing a game plan for for UP, and I invited about like 16 actors, and two producers came, and uh, and I really quick I said, by the way, who in this room is from Michigan? And it was like. 12 people rose their hands, so it's like, I have, there's just so many people in L.A. who are from Michigan, I don't know why that state in particular, maybe because they want to escape the cold, but uh, I have a lot of friends out here, one of the producers, Stephen Wig is from Nagani, and I'm from Nagani, and that's like a really small city, Um, so yeah, it's the exact opposite, well, I was living in Alabama before this, and I knew, I kind of had 
had no friends in Alabama. So when I was moving to LA, I was like, oh my God, I'm gonna have like 15 people who I'm really good friends that I'm about to move to. So that's, no, LA feels like home in a lot of ways. Wow, wow. And and Nagani, in the, in the book, um, you, there's a moment uh, where, um, it says it means nothing. Not not. Um, it's not there. Um, and if it uh, and if it was in the dictionary, it would be between negativity and neglect. Right? Is that is that the? <laughs> um, so so let's talk a little bit about um, UP or or if you're up for it, would you mind reading us a, a, a short section of it, R.A. Sure. I'll, uh, I'm gonna read from. Uh, Craig has two lists in them. I like to call them Craig, Craig's lists uh, in a book uh, that have kind of, for some reason, gotten a lot of response. <laughs> um, one of them is uh, a list of the women they slept with, and actually a lot of females tend to uh, comment on that when <laughs> I've done readings. And, uh, and he has a second list that is his favorite um, metal albums of all time, and uh, guys have tended to focus on that and argue with me about it and stuff. And I like to say that it's Craig the character's list, not mine. <laughs> but I'll, I'll read that. It's uh, on page 108. Up in my room is my best tapes list. People come over, read it, and argue. It stirs up controversy to get people thinking about metal and life, and that's why I did it. But here's the list, and actually can't be argued. Number 10, Metallica, the $5.98 EP, Garage Days Revisited. I only like $5.98 and Kill 'em All, but you got to respect the band that refuses to make videos and promises fans they'll never record battles like they said in that Cream interview. That's a true metal band there, except battery sucks. Number nine, Megadeth, peace sells, but who's buying? I wish Mustaine was still in Metallica. Number eight, Led Zeppelin IV, the Rune album. Led Zepp, come on, that's obvious. If I get a tattoo, it'll be Zoso on my scrotum. Number seven, Black Sabbath, the eternal idol. Ozzy's overrated. Any schmuck can bite off a bat head, but it takes a genius like Tony Iommi to lay down that guitar work. I bet Ozzy's forgotten in two years and Tony lives on. Number six, Pantera, Cowboys from Hell. Cemetery Gates is flawless. Like any good metal tape, it makes me want to hurt myself. Number five, Tesla, Mechanical Resonance, the metal album Elvis wanted to record. Number four, Dawkins, Tooth and Nail, Screw, Clapton, Yingwei, and I Halen, Lynch equals Jesus. Number three, Fastway, Trick or Treat, original motion picture soundtrack. Who is this band? They rule. Most underrated album in the last 666 centuries. Number two, Slayer, Rain and Blood. I sent a letter to them saying I'd sell my soul to Satan if they sent me autographs. They never did. That's probably good. And Drum Solo, Please, by Dave Lombardo on the double bass. It's the number one album of metal for all time. And you got to read the book to find out what he puts as the number one album. <laughs> I'll stop there. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's great. Okay. Well, I know. <laughs> Well, thanks, R.A., for reading that. Well, let's talk about, your, so you're out in L.A., and so what is the what is it like to try and write, um, transform your novel um, into a screenplay? Like, how uh, how is that going for you? Is there anything, like, surprises that you didn't, you know, foresee? Um, yeah, I mean, 
it's, it's, they've done probably five screenplays before that aren't really that good. And this one, uh, when we did the reading, it went fantastic. As a matter of fact, after the reading, that's when the producers kind of demanded contracts for me because the reading went so well. Um, but it was really easy for me to do because I knew the story so intimately because I'd already written the novel. So I kind of busted it out like within a month, and then I've been rewriting from there. Um, there hasn't really been any surprises. The only surprises is in, in a, I, I'm, I'm, I wish I could talk about this more, but I cannot believe I've, I've, I've got to meet probably what I would argue is the best actor and the best actress in Los Angeles to talk about my book. And I, I just couldn't, when I'm sitting across from those people, um, and I don't want to name drop, especially because in case they're going to get involved, I don't, want to, I don't want to say just yet until the contract stuff's done. But I, I just, I've been stunned at the level of talent that has been interested in the book. You know, as a matter of fact, I was telling my mom recently that what, what this actor had said of all my writing and my mom like was almost crying because she couldn't believe that I it was this little engine that could have I just never thought like these sort of things would happen for me but right now everything's on track you know I'm hoping that uh, the film version of UP will, will be shot next year and then I'll ha I have two novels that are coming up with Ghost Road Press next year so things are really nicely in track for me and that's Ghost Road is out of um, Colorado <laughs> Uh, Ghost Road is out of Colorado, RA. Is yeah, the press? out of Denver, and it's a small press that I just didn't realize like these sort of like film uh, interest would happen from being on a very small press. But it's an amazing press. They <laughs> they uh, have signed Douglas Brinkley, who's CBS News, and Rafael Alvarez, who wrote for The Wire on HBO, and. Um, uh, oh God! Uh, an American Book Award winner—I forgot his name—and uh, then Judge John Bullock, who uh, was the University of Virginia Henry Hoynes Fellow. So they sign like really good writers, but who are operating a bit outside of the mainstream. He doesn't—he's not looking for like sort of like Dean Koontz fellow type fiction writing. He's more interested in really original voices that um, the the big time publishers tend to overlook. I know for me that I had sent to some <coughs> fairly big publishers and agents and and got rejected because they said the book was too experimental or whatever that means. Um, although the, the book was selected for the Serrani Riser series and for a while it was uh, contracted under uh, uh, Overlook Press, which is a subsidiary division of Penguin Putnam, but uh, they ended up pulling out. Uh, it was post 9-11 and they were doing cuts and one of the things they cut was my novel. So I, I ended up getting this offer from Ghost Road and went with that and things have fallen along really nicely. Yeah, and it sounds like you've developed a, a like a relationship with this publisher, which is, is not, you know, that's not something to take lightly either. Like it'll be a... Like... Yeah, yeah, Matt Davis at Ghost Road said uh, what else did you got? And I sent him three more books and he said he wanted to publish these two, possibly the four and uh, he's kind of said to me that he wants us to be sort of like uh, what Charles Bukowski did with Black Sparrow, or Black uh, Sparrow Press of, of yes. you know, a lifetime thing where he'd be he'd consistently keep putting on my books. And I mean, as far as an author, that really feels nice that I, I've got that in my back pocket. You know? Um, yeah. Yeah. So, when yeah, does that yeah. happen? <laughs> what's your what's your um, writing like now? Are you able to find time to? Are you producing um, new fiction, or is it more something where you're you're actually more focused on um, the the screenplay and and sort of other aspects of what happens to books in the world now? Yeah, it's, it's I have a crazy life. I got 
um, two minimum wage jobs out in California because I'm trying to survive. The uh, I keep pushing the producers to to up with option money, um, but we're trying to get the contract square with them first before we get into option stuff. But I keep telling them I really need the money so I can just commit myself to writing. <coughs> so I tend to write at night and kind of forego sleep. And the big thing now that I'm working on is definitely the screenplay, just because there's so much interest in that. But I have a memoir that I got in my back pocket, and I got um, another, uh, it's a horror novel that I, I need to shop around with so I get some time, and then uh, this other experimental novel, and then uh, a ton of plays, so yeah, I've got a lot that's lined up, and the nice thing I told Matt Davis I would like to, like for my next horror novel, I, I kind of see it, it's, it's a bit more commercial, that I'm, I'm, I'm going to see if any like larger publishers would want to take it, and then the nice thing about that is I get my name on a broader level than Ghost was able to do, but then I can keep doing some of more, my more experimental novels with Ghost Road. So and when you then, when uh, you say, ex- and then that's going to get more of a name for them. That if I can get uh, some books on maybe some bigger publishing, you know, yeah, houses, sounds, and then still yeah. do um, some really uh, avant-garde, interesting writing. Because like the next book that they're putting out is called <laughs> Portrait of the Artist as a Boogeyman. It is a completely experimental horror novel. I'm deconstructing horror. I, I kind of wanted. I get sick of the cliches of it, and so I just wanted to sort of implode those. Um, but it's a bizarre book. But I'm really excited what people uh, do with it when they read it. So, so, when, so when you say experimental, you're, you, are you always meaning that you're kind of going for what's expected in like a particular genre and then exploding it, or, or like, or avant-garde? Like what? Like what are some what are some ways that UP is because uh, you actually seem to um, not take offense, but you sort of balked at them saying that that was exper- too experimental. <laughs> like so, what what do you think? I mean, it's you've got four. For four voices in here, is that one voice too many, or what makes UP yeah, experimental? Have you read uh, the whole book? Um, got a good thing to ask me on the air, RA. Oh, sorry. <laughs> have you read part of it? Yeah, yeah. I have, yeah. have read part of it. Well, well, I, I, <laughs> Thanks for sending it. Experimental, or what is your response? Well, I, I mean, I'm more interested to hear you say what what you believe about it because it's also well, something that it seems like it. you. I, I mean, I had people, these agents, just, would just roll back and say oh, the characters are like the voices, but it's too experimental. And I just wanted to ask them, well, what does that mean? Right. You know, so the thing that I love about it is when I had these people passing it up, I was like, I really thought it had a lot of potential. I thought it could go pretty far. And right now it's going in its 35th week as the bestseller in fiction for Ghost Road. You know, there's three producers interested. I'm talking with A-level talent to turn into a film. Um, you know, there's, it's a good book. And it's, it's I, I, and I just, I'm, well, do you think I it's... love for Matt Davis is when he has like, all this attention going on and it's making him some money. I like that because he had the guts to, to take on the book and publish it and, and now like for you know there's a, uh, for example uh, University of Michigan Press is somebody who passed up on it and and you know, if the guy's listening, he he shouldn't have. I mean, it's a great it's a great novel. You know, I had Ann Beatty, who's in Best American Short Stories of the Century, called my house to tell me how much she loves the book. You know, I mean, that's well. Well, I, really I wonder. Think it's a good I, book, especially especially the the, the last uh, chapter. I'm really happy with. I just think everything comes to fruition nicely, and I cannot wait. If it's made to a film, I can't wait for the closing shot. I just it's gonna be really stunning. Well, R. A. I really I really hope that it goes well. I hope this wave continues, and I've enjoyed. <laughs> talking with you we're we're at the end of our time and oh, cool, and cool. and thanks for thanks for um i don't know like you coming on uh talking with us over the phone even though you've got the asthma going on pretty badly today 
Um, but nice to talk with you again. You've been listening to R. A. Reiki, his his novel with Ghost Road Press, UP. Uh, more coming in 2010, maybe even a film. I'm T. Hetzel. You're listening to Living Writers. We'll be back after this short break with Scott Lasser. We'll be back. Good afternoon. You've got living writers. If you're just joining us, um, we were talking with R.A. Reiki out in L.A., and now I'm so pleased to have Scott Lasser here in the studio. Um, you just got to town. You flew from Colorado on a plane. Half an hour ago. <laughs> That's right. So the, so the man is on the fly, and uh, if only we had some coffee around um, instead of just Brita water. But anyway, we'll do our best, right, Scott? I'll try. And um, Scott is in town to read, among other things. He's, he's come here to read tomorrow, Thursday, October 22nd, um, at quarter after five at the University of Michigan Museum of Art. That's UMA for all of us who... Uh, I don't know. All right, and with the art museum uh, acronyms, I don't know. Um, and without further ado, I'll read Scott's short bio in the back of his book, um, Out This Year with Knopp, um, The Year That Follows. Scott Lasser is a graduate of Dartmouth College, the University of Michigan, and the Wharton School. His novels include Battle Creek and All I Could Get. A native of Detroit, he lives with his family in Aspen, Colorado. Welcome, Scott. Thank you. Thanks for coming. So this is um, 
coming to to Michigan is is a homecoming of sorts. Then flying into Detroit, do you always recognize the flight path? Because I feel like they switch it up on me whenever I'm coming in. Um, well, I'm always coming from the west, so it always looks pretty much the same. You go by Ann Arbor and you kind of come in and usually land from the north. Sorry. Oh no, that's okay. We're <laughs> we'll just do. Um, yeah, I sound very loud. I don't. I'll, I'll try to not speak so loudly here. Um, so, so you grew up in Detroit, and then you you also went to school here in the so the MFA program. Um, and I noticed that Andrea uh, Beecham has been very instrumental in your books, like in, in all the acknowledgement pages. Uh, Andrea gets a, a shout out, and she does because she's one of my readers. So I, you know, I met Andrea. I think my first three minutes on campus, and uh, we've been friends in the Hopwood Room. Yeah, where else? <laughs> yeah. Did they let her out of the Hopwood Room? Yeah, in the Hopwood Room. Yeah, I think I think I think by now she can go wherever she would like. <laughs> in, in theory, that's not what she tells me. <laughs> that's true. Um, and so, and so, one of your readers that would be. And what does that mean to you? As, um, I mean, obviously. Uh, you've got we've got literally three books on the table here now and i know you're you're um in other projects at the moment but um on your website you you've had multiple jobs you're not just a, a writer you've been a ski instructor english instructor i'm thinking maybe here as a lecturer that's true <laughs> waiter steel worker maybe in detroit um government bond trader uh, and currently a financial advisor um but you're a writer and as I well. I also teach a class in fiction now. Oh, you do? Yeah, okay, so is that is that in Colorado? It's in Colorado, my local community college. Oh, nice. So now, again, with the teaching. The I didn't think two jobs was enough, so I went and got a third. Yeah. So what does it mean to you as, as a writer to have like a, like a good reader? Like when you say, she's one of my readers, Andrea Beecham, what? Well, I think different writers work in different ways, but I'm one that I, I try not to give anything to somebody until I can't figure out how to um, make it better. And so when I can't, you know, I'm at the point where I'm just at a loss. I don't, basically when I'm working on it and I realize I'm not making it any better, then then I'll give it to a reader. Some people like to give out work in progress. I almost never do that. And so, when and why get, is that? Is that like a because um, I don't need superstition, or I don't need or? one of my friends to tell me to go back to work. I know that myself. I mean, I think it's important for a writer to be um, a good editor of his or her own work. And so I, you know, I try to be as hard on myself as I can. And but at some point, you're you know, you're kind of lost in the forest, and you need some outside eyes to look at it. And that's when I send it to Andrea. And you know, Derek Green is another another person who he got his MFA, I think, two years after I did, and, and we've. We met in the. I think I met Andrea and Derek on the same day, and uh, and they are still, you know, two of my closest friends. That is kind of amazing, isn't it? It's almost like some things seem pre preordained in some strange way. Like they just, they. Yeah, I can't think of two people who would be any more different, but you know, we're all friends. So. Yeah, well, and good to have different close readers. I'd imagine the the input on the. It is, uh, you know, I I think that you. In a certain way, it's good to know certain readers well as people because you it helps you interpret what they're saying. And, and also, you know, basically your readers tend to be too nice to you. You have to he- listen sort of between the lines, if you will, to what they're really saying. I'm like, all right, I got it. I'll work on that. Yeah. There's these, there's a theme emerging here, Scott, because you're like, I can be hard on myself. And people don't. You're really rigorous then with your the way. Uh, I don't know. With your. Aren't all writers. Um. No, I think people come up, I, I don't know, maybe they are, but they don't 
it's I don't know. I I, I don't know because I think we all have our methods. I don't know either, but I think they are. I mean, I think that that's how you you get something that you're going to be happy with is by being hard on yourself. I mean, no one can really be harder on. I mean, like, well, let me step back from that. The world is hard on writers, right? I mean, it's just like you know, I have all these other jobs because you can't really make a living writing, and writers teach all over the country because that's really how they get paid. There's very few people that write write books and make a living from it, other than you know some of the the perennial people on the bestseller list who I think now have their own staffs. I, I don't, you know, you, you read these, <laughs> they're, these they're cadre of. <laughs> right. So, you know, but, but for the most of the rest of us who aren't that lucky, I mean, you, you end up doing something else and, it, you know, often it's teaching. And, and, you know, I, I just, I made, I taught for a little bit after I graduated here at the university and then, um, Oh, you stayed in town to teach. I stayed Scott. in town to mm-hmm. teach and I taught, you know, I don't know if the names are still the same, but English 125 and 225, and I'm sure they probably are still the same. Yep. And, uh, you know, and then I, I left, I think, really because, well, I probably shouldn't tell, I'll tell this story. A friend of mine was working at a, a different university than the University of Michigan, and I'm just going to say they have an MFA program, and I don't think it's a place that when you think of MF, when you think of this school, you don't think Master of Fine Arts degree, or for that matter, even the humanities. And... Um, they were looking to hire a fiction writer, and Richard Russo applied for the job. Now, to be fair, at the time, Richard Russo wasn't the Richard Russo we know today, but he published two novels, and I thought he was pretty great. And I said, you're going to hire him, right? And my friend said, well, we're really looking for a woman. And I figured at that point, I'm a white guy, and I don't even have a book out. I'm not going to get a teaching job. I should go do something else. And so I did. And is that when you went to work for Lehman Brothers? Is Actually, that... no. I, I went to, uh, I moved to Aspen because I got a job um, working for a show called Wild America. It was a public television nature show. And I wrote nature shows. And no, I knew nothing about animals before I got there. So how do you write a nature show? What Walk us through that as a, a writer's job. <laughs> it's it's an interesting job. It's a really a two-step process. You write the show. You sort of do your little research on the animals. They want to do animal on, like, I'll just get my favorite one. I did one on skunks, right? So you research the basically the life. It's basically a lifestyle, a life cycle story. So you, you research the life cycle of skunks, of which it's there's about five different types of them, but they're all more or less the same. And then you write the show, and you give that to the, the cinematographers, the, you know, the, the guys who are actually taking the pictures, and they go out in the wild and try to film it. And they come back with whatever they come back with. So and you'll say something about, like, the birth, because you're saying the yeah, life cycle. Shoot, you know, so you're, you're, basically, see... you're writing a script for the show, and and then you you give it to the guy, and he goes out in the wild, and he shoots whatever he can shoot. He may get something that you wrote, and he may get something you didn't. He may get something better. He may not get what you want. You don't know. You bring that back, you edit it, and then you then rewrite it with whatever pictures they were actually able to get. And then as the writer, um, do you know who's going to – do you actually get to do the, the voice overlay, well, too? I worked for or a guy it? named Marty Stauffer who's a, from – you know, if you know who Marty is, then you know who Marty is. He's this guy from Arkansas. You don't. But he, he had this show on – I mean, Wild America was probably on PBS for 10 years or something. And he was sort of this sort of – Marty's kind of like when he's down home, good old boy from Arkansas. And, oh, uh, so he was the voice of Wild he, America. It, it was Marty Stauffer's Wild America. That's right. And, uh, and you know, that they, they had a – I'm going to say that it was a – the other show at the time was called Nature, which I think may still be on. And uh, in Nature, I would say, was for the more educated viewer, and Wild America was for the more 
down home viewer. So how did you, did you work like slapstick moments with skunks into it? Or how did you, like how did, cause yeah, cause then you'd write differently if you were well, writing they told for me, What they told me was Marty. that nothing would be too hokey and they were right. Yeah. Hey, so go towards a, the hokey. Let's just say I got paid a lot more for writing those shows than I did for teaching English. So why did you leave that job? They lost their contract. Oh, okay. All right. Which but leads to, to the MBA because by the, there was a Christmas there where I had, you know, I had an, a graduate degree from here, an undergraduate degree from pretty good school. and Dartmouth. Yeah. And I was waiting tables in a Chinese restaurant. This is probably a typical writer story. And I was just thinking, yeah, and in a town where, like, everybody seems to be, like, a multimillionaire, and I'm thinking, you know, why am I so damn poor? This is just stupid. I should do something different. So I, uh, I, was, I happened to have read, and it's funny because I just wrote an essay about this that's going to be published in Wharton's Alumni Magazine. I wish I had it with me, but it's, I had my some MFA student picked me up and she took my bags to the hotel, so I don't have it with me. But ah, I read um, that would have been great. Oh, every, well. Everything for me rob, robs on books. I read Liar's Poker, Mike Lewis's book about working at Solomon Brothers in the '80s, and I, I read that book and I thought, damn, I could do that. I that that that'll be easy because it's just like a locker room. And I, you know, before I I was used to be a jock, so. Um, so what we've just um, Scott uh, alluded to one of his novels, books, yeah. all I could get, <laughs> and then meaning uh, taking place on Wall Street, Wall Street, right, and, and then Battle Creek, which is really a baseball novel set in Michigan. Set in Michigan, right? Yeah. So you know, I just thought, well, I the could lives do... of men up close in right. locker rooms is what you're saying, right? So I just figured, hey, I I can I'll do well there. I mean, it's pure hubris. I mean, I was like the stupidest, dumbest thing. Don't ever do things like this. But I I didn't know. So um, I called one of my friends and said, hey, I, got, I want to be a bond trader. How do I do it? He laughed at me. He said, well, if no one's going to hire you from where you are now, you've got to go to business school. So I applied to business school. I went, and I amazingly got that job. And your life has been? But, I, you know, my idea was since however it works out, I'll get a book out of it. I mean, really, it was like it wasn't so much about, like, it, I may be a successful business person or I may not, but I'll definitely get a book out of it. So as I, as I say in the piece for the, the – the Wharton magazine. I, I'm probably the only person who ever went to Wharton on a literary impulse. You know, that was just the idea. That's kind of great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, so when we come back, we're going to talk uh, about your latest book, The Year That Follows. Um, yeah. We'll just, and you'll read a little bit for us. I'll do whatever you want me to do. <laughs> <laughs> How kind of you. Yeah. <laughs> um, you're listening to Living Writers on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel and today Scott Lasser is here. His book, The Year That Follows, will be back. Scratch my back. 
If you're just joining us today in the studio, Scott Lasser is here. His book, The Year That Follows. Um, so, so we were talking about your other books, Scott, and this, The Year That Follows, is is very different in in a lot of ways. One of them, um, it's like not, the it's most not about obvious, a group of guys. yeah, oh, okay. <laughs> it's not a, a man. <laughs> There's not a group of men at the center of this one, right? It's it's cat, a woman, mm-hmm. uh, as the the narrative um, voice, the, the the main person you're following through the novel. Um, so, w- with the building of characters, was there? It, did you find anything really strange about writing from uh, with the voice of a a woman when you've been in these I think what was it you said somewhere like the bastions of maleness or something like baseball and Wall Street or men without women in some Mm -hmm. contexts well I'm not sure what the question was but I'm going to run with it um that was it more difficult no I mean you know women are people too I you know it's (laughs) I, I don't think that because my first two books were about these bastions of maleness that uh that it meant that I couldn't do something different it was just i knew those two worlds the world of baseball and the world of wall street really well from my own personal experience i'm a guy i've led i've led that life and i knew details about those worlds did you play baseball too then is that what you mean by that yeah i did i you know my it was really really robbed by my father who um also university of michigan grad and he um he ultimately played baseball in the olympics in 1956 and then he was a baseball coach for years and years and years so i sort of grew up in that world i played a lot of baseball yes I played football and I ski raced, which I, both of those sports I actually like to play and are more interested in. But when I sat down to write a novel, somehow it was about baseball, and I just think that has to do with family. And also, and you, yeah, you dedicated it to your father. And also, I think that that baseball, in a, in a funny way, just lends itself to being written about more than a lot of other sports. It's my theory. I don't know if it's true, but yeah, I wonder why. It seems that way, and uh, and so that's you know. And I always had this idea I shouldn't write about it because it wasn't a serious thing, you know. But then, yes, you, you keep... It's very serious, really, isn't it? Um, yeah, well, what's serious and what's not serious? I don't know how to answer that. I... To me, to me, it was serious, so I just did it. But I, I, I think what it is is that when you, for instance, go and get your MFA, you know, you're sitting around a table with nine or ten other people, and um, I was probably the only jock in the room. Uh, you know, so you you come out of that world where it's like it's not it doesn't you know, nobody else is writing about those things. So or only the popular novelists are writing about those things. So you wouldn't you don't think to take them seriously. But I might take solace for it, 
for instance, in, you know, Bernard Mandelman's first book was about baseball. I mean, you know, you don't, the natural, that's for everybody doesn't know that's the natural. So, um, uh, you know, I think that you, you're, you really should feel free to write about whatever you can write about. Yeah, whatever you have that sort of insider right. knowledge about, right. not to make a bad pun, but it's interesting. So in this book, I'll tell you how this book came about. Yes, do. Um, it really grew out of the second book, All I Could Get. I was, I'd finished that, that book in the summer of 01, and my editor called me and said, listen, um, why don't you come into the Knopf offices, meet the people, the marketing people, help your book. You've never been here, which I hadn't. And so I said, sure, when should I come out? She goes, well, anytime after Labor Day. And my daughter's birthday is September 9th. So it was Sunday that year. So I said, well, how about if I fly out on the 10th and I'll come in on the morning of the 11th? And she said, great, I'll set it up. So just by that weird coincidence, I happened to be in Manhattan on 9-11. And, you know, you don't have to be a writer on a day like that to think, like, want to write something down. And, you know, there's all this crazy stuff is happening. And, uh, and you know, I'm thinking, how am I going to use this in a novel? And, you know, it only took another seven years. Yes. And, and um it took a long time like to write about something like this. You'd mm-hmm. think maybe, because you say you don't have to be a writer to write about something like this, but to write about it well, like to write about it What I meant was you didn't have to be a writer to think, like, I want to write this down. This is something I need to remember. And, yeah. And so, you know, I, and also the way I was looking at it is... Like is, a love poem. Right. I was looking... Exactly. Or how about just an email? I mean, anything, <laughs> right? I mean, I don't have to be too... I mean, there's this idea that that um, it's a weird thing about writing. I mean, on the one hand, you know, it's this mysterious thing, right? Nobody can really figure out how it gets done well. And on the other hand, you go to school and you learn how to create a story the way you'd build a, a workbench or a, you know, you know, like a, the craft a, a tools. Porch. We talk right. about it, right? Right. So you so you you have to have the tools, and then somehow you make this thing that's somewhat magical. And I I don't really know how it happens, even though I've you know I do my best. I, I mean, I think. The way it really happens is you just keep banging your head against the wall until the wall cracks, and or your head does, or both, and then you're done. And something about imagination in it. <laughs> right. Because if you're making it, right, you're into something else that you're living in, yeah, in a way. It, that's a parallel world. It's an world. interesting idea, because if you, if you ask two people to describe the same event, they'll describe it differently. So is that imagination, or is that reportage? I mean, I, you know, that's, it's, I don't know where one stops and the other begins. I mean, I think you just you put yourself in that world and then that is just the world. It's not like to me, it's, I mean, I know it is imagination, but I just think of it as the reality. Did, did you feel like you were taking a risk about writing, um, this, a book about September 11th or did you just feel like it, it was a story a... you wanted to tell or what? Uh, and I, and I feel like I read somewhere that you you wrote many pages and those had to be set aside and, and that's wrote a, a whole, few questions i wrote a whole different novel and just you know i got you always know you're in trouble in a novel when you're not sure whether you're at the end or not i mean if you don't know that then you should just start over and that's really where i got to is, you know th- you know three oh, you know over 300 pages in which is enough for a novel already and i'm like am i at the end am i not at the end i'm like ultimately I decided to start over, and I just started over. Different characters, same idea, different characters. And um, and even the early drafts of this book, the cat woman character was actually a man, and then I changed that, which I think really made it better. And uh, Why? Why do you think it made it better? I think it made it better because the, because also I, it, the, the, you know, the, the story revolves around, you know, cat goes and has dinner with her brother, and he 
on September 10th of 01, he tells her that he thinks he's fathered a child because his ex-girlfriend just got back from three months of maternity leave and they broke up a year ago. He does the math. He thinks he must be the father of that child. And then the next day he goes to work, he's never heard from again. And she goes to look for that child. And I think it works better having a woman, a single mother, go to look for her brother's lost child than the brother. I, and I, I'm not even exactly sure why, but for me, it just worked better. And also they're important in the book is the relationship with their father. And I think it also worked better. There was a father daughter relationship. So I think when I made that change, it made me throw out, you know, three quarters of what I had, but then I could write through the end relatively quickly. Was it, so after you reached that in the first drafting of the story with mm-hmm. maybe the male as a protagonist, then, um, did you, like, how did you know that, you wanted to stay with it. Like, how did you know that there was still something that wouldn't let go of you? You know, that you would go back to it and to have the fortitude. You know, do you see what I'm asking you? Like, because <laughs> it, it didn't let you go. And and to write about September 11th, maybe at that point you could have been like, well, maybe in another decade or whatever. Yeah. So when I made the change, why did I decide to keep going with the change? Yeah, did it just not let you go, the story that you wanted to tell or, or what? I think when you're writing novels and you, you make those decisions, you got to write them for a while to figure out whether it's it's going to work. And I, I think you can't you can't get discouraged by the fact that you think it's horrible. Of course you're going to think it's horrible. Or, you know, you, some days you're going to love it, some days you're going to hate it. And, and the, the key thing is that there's a, there's a guy I used to work with on Wall Street, and whenever he wanted you to do something, he said, listen, put your cheeks in the seat. And I think that's that's good advice for a novelist. It's like you got to sit down and do it, and you know, it, and, and only after a lot of that are you going to have any idea whether you're going to keep it or not. I, you know, I just think you have to be um, unspoken in this conversation. Is like, isn't it hard to throw things away? But really, it's liberating to throw things away. Just write them if they're not good. Throw them away and write something else. The great thing about being a writer is that you don't have to do it in public. So you know, you wait until you've got the right thing before you show it to anybody. It's it's not like you know, being a stage actor or a stand-up comedian where, like, if you're bad when you're originally doing it, then you're just not good. This is, you know, believe me, I'm most, and I bet this is true of a lot of writers, they're horrible most of the time, but what you read is just the good stuff, and thank God for that. For, do you mean for all of us? For, <laughs> no, all, for the for, writers, for, the for all writers, writers and the, the readers. Writers and the readers. <laughs> yeah. right. Would you read us something then, Scott? Will sure. you Will you uh, maybe, and set, I don't know how you want to set up the scene because you're going to the middle of the novel. Right. I'm going to the middle of the novel. The great thing about fiction is that you can move back and forth in time pretty easily. So um, this is actually um, a short section from, I'm going to read a a portion of a short section um, from Kat, the protagonist's point of view. Uh, On the morning of 9-11 when she's obviously, her her brother worked on Wall Street. He left early. She's gotten up later, realized the attacks happened, and she now goes to look for him because she can't, can't get him. That morning she went to the barricades. She walked the whole way, past people, hordes of them, moving in an opposite direction, everything on the island flowing north like a river in Maine. The subways were down, the path trains, thousands were walking, dazed, an army in retreat. To the south, the smoke rose, a huge ash-black column that turned white at the top and tilted east. Otherwise, the sun was bright. It was a day almost without shadows. At At the barricades, powder blue with yellow lettering, she found a row of newbie cops, still in their khaki academy uniforms, and a throng of people trying to go south. I live there, damn it, one guy kept saying, a big man with a shaved scalp, though Cat could make out a small headband of stubble. He was going bald and obviously decided to get ahead of it in hundreds of droplets of sweat. You can't go, said one of the cadets. You can't, not now. It was a young woman trying to get to her boyfriend. Please, 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 she said over and over, though no one listened. 
One cadet kept saying, none shall pass, none shall pass, none shall. Both sides had their mantras. She moved down the line. This was 14th Street, miles from the attack, and were not for the barricade, it might have been difficult to know that something had gone awry. Kyle's cell phone was going straight to voicemail. Someone finally picked up the office line, but the someone was in London, where the calls had been routed. Kyle's building was evacuated, the woman said. As far as the woman knew, everyone was safe. Maybe the air smelled funny. It was Kat's first day in New York for a long time. Six years? Seven? Maybe the air here always smelled funny. By 7th Avenue, she found a real cop along the barricade. He was older, perhaps a teacher at the academy. She explained that her brother was missing. He didn't answer his cell phone. She was worried. She could feel it physically, a panic clutching at her stomach. Eh, no one knows anything, the cop said. But you don't want to go down there. Forget about the phone. There were cell antennas on the tower, so lots of calls aren't working. He's got to get out of there on foot. If I was you, I'd go home and wait for him to walk through the door. Thank you, Scott. You're welcome. Ooh, the wait, right? Yeah, well, I mean, there's, right after that, there's a scene in which he comes across a group of people standing in line um, at a building, and she just gets in the line. She doesn't know why they're standing in line. And then she asks the guy in front, why, am I, why are we standing in line? They're standing in line to give blood, right? And she doesn't, but then she realizes, well, I can't wait. I have to go back to the, you know, and, you know, like I said, you're in, I was in New York that day, and I, I um, part of the little thing I'll talk about tomorrow is how do you decide what to put in and what to leave out? And I think it's far more difficult to leave things, to figure out what to leave out than what to put in. There's, a, there's always a ton to put in. It's taking away the stuff to, like, sort of carve the stone down to what actually is going to be the statue. That's the difficult thing. And how do you do that? What, is it about the drafts of, that you're writing? Or, yeah, I or think the, you uh, rewrite uh, endlessly. I mean, most of, in fact, all of what I read, I'd never experienced. I just, I, I didn't go to, I, I did go down towards 14th Street the day after, not because I was trying to get through, but because I actually went to dinner at my agent's house who lived on 16th Street. But I wasn't there the day that day, but you can imagine how it would go. Um, the line of people waiting to give blood, I did come, that was something that I I saw and probably might not have thought to put in if I hadn't actually experienced it. Um, and of course, the interesting thing was they didn't really need the blood because no one was really injured. They were, you either died or you got out. So, um, But, but that, it gave people, you could feel like you were doing something, I suppose. Well, and that. and yeah, I, I think that was, you know, there was, uh, I think there was that, that well-documented 75 to 78 hours in New York where all New Yorkers were nice to each other before they went back to being New Yorkers. It, but it was really pretty. No long. offense. <laughs> well, just kidding. New Yorkers know it's true. Uh, but that those those few days were really amazing days in the, in the city. And you know, I was trapped there, and you couldn't for a while. You couldn't leave. So, um, uh, you know, it was. Yeah, I think there's an image you say for Cat trying to get a rental car. It was like being on the the floor of the like a trading uh, frenzy or something. Yeah, that that was that's what it reminded me of because I actually did that. I found this rental car place in Paramus, New Jersey, and got a ride out there. And and I figured, you know, that that everybody'd be trying to kill each other to get rental cars. But in fact, there were there were a ton of rental cars because New Yorkers from all over the country had rented cars elsewhere and were driving them back. So everybody was trying to get home. That that was what was the main thing is everyone was trying to get home and it wasn't easy to do let's take a short break um we'll be back in a moment uh you just heard um a short piece from scott lasser's latest novel um the year that follows he'll be appearing tomorrow 
period always sound, makes you sound like a magician, but <laughs> you'll be reading. <laughs> Scott Lasser will be reading with Travis Holland tomorrow at UMA. Um, that's Thursday, October 22nd at quarter after five. Um, I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be back. Right down, right off of your feet. Take you home with me. Put you in my house. Boom, 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 boom. How, 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 how. I love to see you strut up and down the floor. Talking to me, that baby talk. I like it like that. Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, Scott Lasser, his latest book, The Year That Follows, uh, out with Knopf. And thanks again to Brian Delaney for engineering for us and to R.A. Reiki for, for starting off the program with his novel, UP, Ghost Road Press. Scott, um, so the title is The Year That Follows. I was just thinking that UP is a really good title. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. The good old Upper Peninsula, right? There should be more novels set in the in the UP. I, I agree. I couldn't agree more. Titles are difficult, you know? I mean, it, it. I think that's one of the hardest things is coming up with the title. Why? Um, well, I don't know. It just is. I, you know, I know that, that the, way it, the way I think it works is that you work really hard and you finally come up with a title, and then the publisher doesn't like it, and they tell you they want to change it, and you say, okay, great, what do you got? And they have nothing, so then you end up calling it what you originally picked. What do they, and why do they, do they ever say why they don't like it, or is it just like mm, I just don't think we can sell that? Um, <laughs> or like what is the on Battle Creek? They didn't like Battle Creek. But that's such an that's a great title. It seems like well, you have good taste because that's where the the it's a battle and it <laughs> takes place there, right? They didn't like the, it because they thought it sounded like a Civil War book. Okay. Well, I like how that. Well, then it's a good thing they have a baseball glove on the front cover well, to tip people back. off. Yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> just in ca- just in case you might not get it. No, I, you know it's funny. That's because I, I was I was working at Wall Street at the time, and you know I, I mean I was just writing, and I really wasn't worrying about. I figured if I got something to go to, eventually I'd get it published. And you know you're working eighty, ninety hours a week, easy. So who has time to worry about who's going to buy your work? And but I I'd published some short stories and an editor from the Missouri Review invited me to some book parties. I think it's still the only book party other than my own I've ever been to. And uh, and so I went to this thing, and I, I walk in, and you know, I'm wearing a suit, right, which immediately 
I looked different than almost everybody there because I'd come straight from the street. And uh, this guy from walk, Wall Street, you the mean? The guy walks up to me, <laughs> right? This guy walks up to me and he says, uh, "Are you a writer?" And I, why he thought that? And I guess it was maybe because he didn't recognize me and he figured he would know everybody in the business. So I'm like, uh, "Yeah." I mean, I wasn't even sure how to answer that. He's like, "Well, what are you working on?" And I'm like, "Oh, I'm working on this novel." He said, "Tell me about it." I told him, "I goes, well, what are you going to call it?" And I go, well, "I don't know what to call it now." So I'm just calling it Battle Creek. He goes, "That's a great title." He's the only guy I ever said that. Um, <laughs> so anyway, until that, now, until then, and then you know, with all I could get, I mean, kind of. I decided after that I would take all my uh, titles from sort of blues and rockabilly songs because, you know, I, I, I think they do clever things with words. So this, this, th- that title came out of this Rosie Flores song where the, the verse was, Bigger is better, that's what I say. If you're looking for less, get out of my way. All I need is all I can get. Someday I will, I just haven't yet. So I just changed all I could get because it could have two meanings. There could be a lot or a little if you think about it, just by your inflection. And uh, my editor didn't like the word could. You know, and I'm like, all right, well, what do you got? But they never came up with anything, so we left it there. And then the year that follows, I mean, that got that title came very late in the process, and it really just comes out of the fact that the book really isn't. I mean, so far, we've made it sound as though this book is about 9/11, but really, what it's about is the year after 9/11, which is where that title really comes from. And uh, and you know, that was the kind of thing where I told them, yeah, okay, how about this? My agent immediately loved it, and my editor would like it grew on her over time. So eventually, that that's what we went with, and I think it does what it needs to do. Yeah, I'm wondering if they were concerned that it's it's like quiet in some way, but it it has such um, hey, the year know, that follows has like a it it just seems to have a, an epic quality. They to rejected it. free beer, which I thought was a great title, but <laughs> you know. Listen, I, I, coupons inside I, I mean look I, titles and covers should help sell books need all the help they can get right they truly need all the help they can get and you know it, it distresses me what ha- you know the world today I guess because I feel like books have the deepest offer the deepest satisfaction of all the arts and yet it's relatively hard to get people to read and to buy a real book and and particularly with what's happening with independent bookstores, it's difficult to even find a store that cares about real books. I mean, it's, it's distressing. It's truly distressing. So what can we do? What can we do? Um, I don't know exactly. I think you do a couple, but I mean, I have some ideas. One is shows like this help. I mean, I think that, you know, you, if there's 10 people listening to the show, that's 10 people to know about. And my mom. And, <laughs> and your mom. What's your mom's name? Sally. Hey, Sally. Um, <laughs> Sally, I'm glad you're out there. So, you know, they, they know about, well, I've been listening, so at least four books they probably haven't heard of. So there's, you know, that's um, UP, Battle Creek, All I Could Get, and The Year That Follows, in case you're keeping score at home. So there's, there's you know, four good reads that you could go out and find at a bookstore if you know what to look for, or, frankly, go online and get. And, you know, that online thing, it's a double-edged sword because, on the one hand, it's really hurt the bookstores. There's no doubt about that. The on community the, idea, like, of right. the bookstore. On right? the other hand, if you, want, if, you know, if you happen to know about the book and you want to get it, you can get it. And if you if you live in an outer lying area or a small town or like where you didn't necessarily have access to a lot of bookstores, you can get it. If UPS or FedEx can get to you or the United States Postal, Postal System, yep. you can get get it. Right. Yeah. And and also you can use the web to market if you can, you know, you, if you can get if you can get the audience. What do I mean, you think about your website, Scott? What Yeah, well, why do I have a website? Yeah, it's another Scott, thing to keep up with. Scottlasserbooks.com. Unlike what they listed in the back of the novel, if you look back, and we're now looking at the back flap of my book, and they have scottlasser.com, which is actually some musician from St. Louis 
who um, getting lots of hits really now. doesn't do anything with his website. And I, I've never met the guy. I was actually shocked to find out there was another Scott Lasser, let alone that he'd registered our name as the, <laughs> you know, he has the URL. So I had to go with Scott Lasser books. But hey, that's the way it goes. Um, yeah, you know, both my editor and agent thought I should get, should have one, so I I did it. You know, and it it cost you know frankly a few thousand dollars, which I wasn't sure whether it was worth it. But you know, now that I have it, sunk cost they call that in business school. Um, you know, now I'm sort of glad because I you know, have this little blog, and you'd be shocked. You write a book and you feel like nobody reads it. You write 25 words on a blog and you'd be surprised the email traffic you get. It's it's what do you mean? Like what sort crazy. of crazy? So well, just you know, I, like I did one. Um, uh, just as an example, I did one about a month ago, maybe about what to read now. I because because I, I think, saw that one. Yeah, because I think that's really, um, you know, that's a question I get more than anything. When people find out you're you're a writer, they go, "Hey, what should I be reading?" And I'm like, you know, my answer is, you mean other than my books? Um, how about these? So now I think as as writers, we love to read and and we love to celebrate the things that we we like to read. So because well, we're obsessive, in some ways. Speak for yourself. <laughs> we. <laughs> okay. Yeah. The royal we. Uh, maybe a little. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I think that the, that the web can be used to market books. I mean, I think the web has to be used to market books because there really is no other venue. I mean, it's not like you look to today, back in the day. I mean, when I was getting my MFA, there were serious writers on the Today Show all the time. Now there are none, right? I mean, think about it, none. And, uh, you know, the last writer I saw, and I don't watch the Today Show all that often, but sometimes the gym I go to has a plane, was uh, Buzz Aldrin. Which is, you know, he wrote a book. But he's an astronaut. Exactly. That's <laughs> you the only be way. Something else, you, and then you write a book right, about it. Right. If you're it, a celebrity yeah. for some other thing, and you've <laughs> written a book, then you can get on. But otherwise, there's there's just no way. On, I guess unless it's a cookbook about, you know, uh, Julia Child losing weight or, or getting oh, your kids oh, eat vegetable oh. or whatever. I mean, oh. that kind of stuff. You know, the People Magazine stuff. Okay. And I got nothing against People Magazine. If you want, you know, if they ever want to write me up, I'd certainly let them. But the point is, is yes. that it's yeah. hard. You know, the books have a hard time getting. Um, whatever you want to call it, traction or purchase in the, in the national media. So the web sort of allows you to circumvent that and go right to the readers if you can find those readers. I mean, it's also just straight, look, I mean, even the New York Times doesn't re- review fiction like it used to. I mean, I just think they used to do a lot more fiction than they do now. Hmm. And, and you know, if they're not doing it, who's going to do it? Come on, New York Times. Yeah, well, they're almost insolvent, so that they have their own issues. Then come on, New Yorker. Yeah, something, something. Right. <laughs> um, so I, I like how you um, have epigraphs at the beginning of each of your book, and mm-hmm. this one was um, what uh, for, for your latest novel, the mm-hmm. year that follows. Um, it's what did I know? What did I know of love's austere and lonely offices? Robert Hayden, those winter Sundays. Detroit poet, by the way. Yeah, I mm-hmm. wondered if you had taken Larry Goldstein's course when you were here in the MFA program. I didn't. No. Okay. I'm relatively uneducated. So how did you come across Robert Hayden's, uh, like what? I read. It's you, so you do your, you do your part. I, I try. You I read fa- poems. I, um, yeah, not as much as I should or wish that I could, but yes, I do. Yeah, absolutely. Don't well, all write, I mean, I, I think everybody does. I, you know, I'm, believe me, I'm always searching in the dark, but you know, I mean, I found that poem and it, it spoke, you know. It's about his father, right? And and it it spoke to me directly. And and when did you know you were a writer, Scott? Like when was that? What was that moment? When for will you? I know? Or when did you know? Like are you <laughs> <laughs> nice? <laughs> I keep plowing on. Um, like I think when I was in the MFA program here, there there were two things that were said at at talks that visiting writers gave that really stuck with me. One was a writer is someone who writes, 
that seems rather obvious, but you'd be shocked how many people want to call themselves writers who don't actually write. And I think, and and by writing, I'm going to say that includes reading. You know, Tom Lynch, who you've probably yes, been on your show, friend of the show. Okay. He's going to be on the show soon. Okay. Well, the baseball team that this is a weird coincidence. The baseball team that my father coached, that you know, gave me the background for Battle Creek, was sponsored by Tom's father. It's a small world. That's what I actually that I wondered that when I was <laughs> yeah, reading it. That's home, so funny. Right? Yeah, yes. that's, that's that's where that comes in. So um, I met Tom. I don't I don't know him all that well. But I, I love reading him, and he, he wrote that uh, reading and writing are two sides of the same conversation. That that just is, you know, self-evidently true. So, yeah, I mean, you, you have, if you want to be a writer, you have to read a lot, and you have to write a lot. It's really that simple. Then I think you can call yourself a writer, published, not published, who cares? So that's that was the first thing that started with me. The other thing was is they said, well, how do you know whether you're going to, like, when you're not going to make it? You know, like... Like when you when you finally you know somebody asked that question, which is actually a question on all aspiring writers' minds. How do you know when you're just not going to make it? And the answer was when you stop. Perfect. Scott Lasser, thanks for being on Living Writers today. Thanks for having me. I've enjoyed I've enjoyed this time. You've been listening to Living Writers. I'm T Hetzel. Uh, we opened the program with R. A. Reiki, his book UP. Um, I've been talking now with Scott Lasser, his latest novel, The Year That Follows, out with Knopf. Um, Thanks very much for listening, whether you're here in Ann Arbor, out in the other parts of the world, maybe in, even in Aspen or in Florida or, or somewhere. Um, until next time, I'm T. Hetzel. This is Free Speech Radio News for Wednesday, October 21st, 2009. From New York City, I'm Doreen Marina. Coming up on today's program, we'll look at how a new budget for the Department of Homeland Security could affect immigration policy. You know, appropriations uh, generally are, are often overlooked in terms of the impact that they have on the policies. In northern Georgia, local farmers call for help in recovering from recent floods. You know, I think if we're going to bail out the banking system and um, 